This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Like they did jazz and blues and cults, their, their, their religious groups, their religious sects in the cities, um, uh, uh, like they did ragtime, like we did hip-hop, like we're doing right now with trap. Black people in their creativity, we, we, we preserved that spiritual culture. And, 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 and what, what black power was in 1966 was simply an expression of that black spiritual culture coming out of Malcolm, coming out of the nation, coming out of the Panthers saying, we don't want the religiosity of the nation, but we want its power. They kept the power, they got rid of the, the Islam, the nation of Islam. The elder Cleaver was a member of the nation in prison. When, they, when the Panthers encountered Malcolm's religion, they rejected religion, but they keep his power. So when they utter black power with Stokely and Willie Ricks in, 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 in Mississippi in 66, Martin Luther King is there that night. The only four people spoke that night. Willie Ricks, Stokely Carmichael, Martin Luther King, and one other. King is right on the stage where black power is made famous. King is black power. Malcolm was black power. The nation was uttered. It was a secularization of that phenomenon. And now we, uh, as a people, should understand that black power was, it was finally... With, with, with black folk finally being honest with white folk. We got rid of the Father divine. We got rid of a lot of our, you know, the, the trickster aspect of it that covered up the power, the secular power intentions. And when black power was uttered, then they could see it for what it really was. It really was simply black people seeking secular power. Father divine, nation of Islam, the Moorish Science Temple, Rastafari, the, the, the five percenters, all of that was all about getting secular black power and the Panthers and, the, and SNCC finally made it clear, coming out of influence of King and, and the nation, both Christian and Islamic, and they secularized it when they said black power. When they said black power, they meant no more religious influence per se, but we're going to keep the power and we're going to let these white folk know and capitalists know we reject it. America's chickens! Coming home! Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Known as the father of black history, Carter G. Woodson dedicated his life to celebrating the historic accomplishments of black people, which led to the establishment of Black History Month, celebrated every February since 1976. He passionately believed that all Americans should better understand the largely overlooked achievements 
of Black Americans. Black History Month is a time to celebrate, reflect, and educate ourselves about the powerful contributions of black people on our world. We recognize these and many other African Americans who forged a path, achievements that helped move America and the world forward and pave the way for future generations. African Americans account for a large portion of the American population. At the turn of the 21st century, there were 36 million African Americans in the South, 2 million in New York City, 1 million in Chicago, and around 500,000 to 1 million African Americans living in Detroit, Philadelphia, and Houston. Early History of African Americans History of African Americans began when 20 Africans were dropped in the English colony of Virginia in 1619. They worked as indentured servants who were bound to an employer for a limited number of years. Their population kept growing and reached 760,000 in 1790. Most of them were directly imported from Africa or were the children of slave mothers, accounting for one-fifth of the population of the United States. The blacks were documented into slavery in Virginia in 1661 and all the English colonies by 1750. During that time, they were considered an inferior race with heathen culture. They were forced to work in the farmlands of the New World. Africans were sold as merchandise by European traders on slave ships across the Atlantic Ocean to the West Indies, the region of the North Atlantic Ocean and the Caribbean. At least one-sixth of them died during the journey due to shock, disease, and suicide. Slavery in America During the period of the 17th and 18th centuries, Africans and African Americans referring to those born in the New World were forced to work as slaves on tobacco, rice, and indigo plantations of the southern coast, from the Chesapeake Bay colonies of Maryland and Virginia south to Georgia. Eventually, slavery became rooted in the South's huge cotton and sugar plantations. Legislation was passed by President Thomas Jefferson in 1807 to end the slave trade in America. However, it did nothing but boosted the domestic slave trade in the country. Black women were forced to conceive as early as age 13 and to give birth as often as possible. There were still free black people making up one-tenth of the entire African-American population. They originated with former indentured servants and their descendants. Some of them migrated from the West Indies or were freed by their owners. But while in the South they were subject to restrictions imposed on slaves, in the North they were not allowed to vote, own any property, and travel freely. They even faced the risks of being kidnapped and enslaved. Movements to End Slavery Abolitionists in Britain and the United States in the 1840-1860 period developed large, complex propaganda campaigns against slavery. Among the free blacks in the North were emerging African-American leaders in many states, such as Philadelphia, Boston, and New York City. They initially held national and state conventions in early 1830. However, these people shared different opinions on how to deal with slavery and discrimination. Several leaders encouraged slaves to revolt and overthrow their masters, while others thought they should enhance the economy and establish a modern black country in Africa. Thus, African Americans founded Liberia in West Africa, which foreshadowed the development of Pan-African nationalism. 
American Civil War According to the Missouri Compromise of 1820, there must be an equal number of slave and free states, but this was abrogated, leading to slavery in all American territory. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected President of America on the anti-slavery platform of the New Republican Party. At the beginning of 1861, a movement was launched in an attempt to liberate all the country's slaves. It was the Civil War. However, the initial goal of Lincoln was not to abort slavery, but to emancipate gradually, with the federal government compensating the slaveholders for the loss of their property. But in September of 1862, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, stating that all slaves were to be free, making the Civil War a war to end slavery. African Americans after the Civil War After the Civil War, nearly four million slaves were freed, gained their citizenship, and the right to vote by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, respectively. However, all of these new provisions were ignored, especially in the South. During Reconstruction, with leadership from educated African Americans from the North and abroad, they gradually wield political power in the South. However, it didn't last long due to economic pressure and violent anti-black activities, such as ones from the Ku Klux Klan. The white supremacy once again dominated, leading to racial separation all over the southern states. In the post-Reconstruction years, both African-Americans in the South and the North struggled to find a job. So many of them decided to migrate westward. Impacts of World War I In 1900, nearly 8 million African-Americans still lived in the South. However, due to economic depression, more African-Americans moved northwards and were then embroiled in World War I. During the war, thousands of black officers were commissioned and many served abroad in labor battalions and service regiments. In 1919, the Universal Negro Improvement Association was established in the Harlem District of New York City by Marcus Garvey, a black nationalist born in Jamaica. With several hundred thousand members, it is considered to be the largest mass movement of African Americans in the country's history. Garvey's movement ceased after he was jailed and deported to his home country. The Great Depression Due to the Great Depression of the 1930s, a large number of African Americans lost their jobs amidst inherent discrimination. Virtually ignored by the Republican administrations of the 1920s, black voters drifted to the Democratic Party, especially in the northern cities. They supported Democratic candidate Franklin D. Roosevelt in the 1932 presidential race with the establishment of the New Deal reforms. African Americans were aided with low-cost public housing, education, and more jobs. Impacts of World War II The outbreak of World War II, along with the industrial boom, put an end to the Depression in 1939. With support from President Roosevelt, African Americans secured more jobs at better wages during the war. More and more blacks migrated from the rural south to the industrial cities of the north, which was known as the Great Migration. However, due to culminating job competition along with serious housing shortages, race riots broke out in many areas. The worst occurred in Detroit in June 1943. 
During the war, a large portion of African-American soldiers overseas were in service units and combat troops remained segregated. But then integrated officer training was subject to ratification. In 1949, four years after the end of World War II, the armed services finally adopted a policy of full integration. The Civil Rights Movement The Civil Rights Movement was the persistent and deliberate step of African Americans in the 1940s and 1950s. Direct, nonviolent action by African Americans achieved several successes such as the bus boycott of 1955-56, led by the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. in Alabama, student sit-ins movement in Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960, and freedom rides in Alabama, Mississippi to defy segregation on interstate buses in 1961, Freedom Now Party in Michigan in 1964, and national attention in the spring of 1963 in Alabama. Within 15 years after the Supreme Court prescribed all-white primary elections in 1944, the number of the registered black electorate in the South increased more than five-fold, reaching 1.25 million in 1958. The culmination of the Civil Rights Movement was in 1963, when King addressed the crowd of about 250,000 demonstrators gathered on the Mall from Lincoln Memorial. The march aided in securing the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which banned discrimination in voting, public accommodations, and employment. Post-Civil Rights Era of African American History In 1989, Douglas Wilder became the first African American elected governor in U.S. history. In 1992, Carol Mosley Braun of Illinois became the first black woman elected to the U.S. Senate. There were 8,936 black officeholders in the United States in 2000, showing a net increase of 7,467 since 1970. In 2001, there were 484 black mayors. The 39 African-American members of Congress formed the Congressional Black Caucus, which serves as a political bloc for issues relating to African-Americans. The appointment of blacks to high federal offices, including General Colin Powell, Chairman of the U.S. Armed Forces Joint Chiefs of Staff, 1989-93, United States Secretary of State, 2001-05, Condoleezza Rice, Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs, 2001-04, Secretary of State in 2005-09, Ron Brown, United States Secretary of Commerce, 1993-96, and Supreme Court Justices Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Thomas, also demonstrates the increasing visibility of blacks in the political arena. The dramatic political breakthrough came in the 2008 election, with the election of Barack Obama the son of a black Kenyan father and a white American mother. He won overwhelming support from African-American voters in the Democratic primaries, even as his main opponent, Hillary Clinton, had the support of many black politicians. The post-civil rights era is also notable for the new Great Migration, in which millions of African-Americans have returned to the South, including Texas, Georgia, Florida, and North Carolina, often to pursue increased economic opportunities now desegregated southern cities. Our lives have greatly benefited and improved because of contributions made by the African American community. 
We honor them during Black History Month and throughout the year. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. One of the signs that manifest the wrath of God today against America and against the white world, period, is the upset in nature. Everything that America tries to do today, wherein once you were successful in all of your efforts, all of your uh, endeavors were successful. Anything that Uncle Sam put his hand on turned to gold. Everyone bowed to Uncle Sam. Everyone respected Uncle Sam. But not because I say so, but for facts. Today, the shoe is on the other foot. The whole world is turning its back on Uncle Sam. The whole world is looking down on Uncle Sam. The whole world looks at Uncle Sam with contempt and with increasing hatred. Why? Because Uncle Sam is the earth's leading hypocrite. The number one hypocrite on this earth is Uncle Sam. He sent a hate bus to meet him. This man then goes on to promise in the same interview that when he becomes president in 1972, he will put all Jews in the gas chamber. Now, my friends, I know Malcolm X. He is no fascist. I am merely pointing out that if you do not have an adequate program and if you do not rely upon the progressive allies, you throw yourself open to being utilized by these people who have no interest in what we are doing. The Muslim movement basically fails to see the real problem. The problem can never be stated in terms of black and white. I am here to tell you in a showdown I will stand with Jim Peck sooner than I will stand with many Negroes I know. This democratization and socialization the Negro cannot do alone. He can contribute greatly toward it. He can contribute vastly toward it. And any movement which begins by blocking out the active cooperation of the best minds, many of which are white as well as black, as to the nature of the new society we need to have here, the process of socialization which we need to have here is unrealistic and fighting a losing battle. For the freedom ride created a situation in which Kennedy then had to act through his brother because to fail to do so would create so much confusion that something had to be done. The problem is how do Negroes and their friends make the institutions which exist impossible to exist? The way in which the segregation was done away in the Woolworths and other stores in the South was by people sitting and saying, either you will have no places to eat or they will be integrated. When we did that, they were integrated. <laughs> Furthermore, I maintain that even if it were possible to bring any degree of progress now, 
It is going to be because as we follow this form of mass action and strategic nonviolence, we will not only put pressure on the government, but we will put pressure on other groups which ought by their nature to be allied with us. And they will have to stand up and be counted in their own interest. Spokesman for white people. White people are too intelligent for that. Well, we today are waking up to, and there's no so-called Negro married to a, a white woman that can stand up and says, that say that he speaks for the black masses. Maybe he can speak for the bourgeois, that, 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 <laughs> the bourgeoisie. But as Dr. Rustin pointed out, he doesn't speak for the black masses, and there are more poor black people in this country than there are rich black people. Please. So the Honorable Elijah Muhammad says that if you try and keep us here against our will, and enforce segregation upon us, you're going to have violence throughout the country. You're going to have it whether you like it or not. And when I say Kennedy, I mean John F. Kennedy. The man who promised all the American so-called Negroes who vote what he was going to do for them when he got in office and has yet to do the first thing that he promised but has paid off the Negro leadership so that they are silent and say nothing about the promises that he originally made to get Negroes to vote for him. Now, I would like to point out another point before we go any farther. Uh, we who are followers of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad do not make a choice between integration and segregation. Segregation doesn't enter into the picture at all. We are for separation, not, not segregation. Segregation, as we're taught by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, is that which is forced upon inferiors by superiors. Separation is done voluntarily by two equals. When you find an all-white school, they don't call it a segregated school. They call it a separate school. When you find an all-Negro school, they call it a segregated school because it was set up by the white man. If it was an all-black school that had been set up by the black man himself, run by the black man himself, with the curricula that they follow, uh, put in the school by the black man himself, they would call it a separate school. And it would be just as independent and on equal, equal basis with the white school. People who are defenseless, who are harmless, and because of your indoctrination and brainwashing, uh, brainless, senseless, have no intellect whatsoever of their own where they can think for themselves. And it is because America has taken millions of black people from the East from their own culture, from their own civilization, and brought them here and stripped them and brought them down to, an, uh, to the level of an animal and then turned around and taught them that they were savages in the jungle, cannibals eating people, when they were caught and brought here, this is supposed to justify the American white man's treatment of these people. It's like taking a horse, putting him in a cage, tying him up, and putting another horse on the outside and then tell everybody the horse that's in the cage can't run as fast as the one on the outside. And this is what you have done to the American Negro. You have brought us here and stripped us of everything we once had. You've stripped us of our culture. You've stripped us of our language. You've stripped us of our God, our religion, our, our background. You've cut off our roots, our all ties that we once had with our own kind in the East. And after stripping us of our roots and destroying us as a people, making us become dead as a people, mentally and otherwise, then you point the finger of scorn at us and tell the world that we're not ready for freedom, that we're not qualified for freedom.
All praise is due to Allah. And th it is for this reason that God is bringing America to her knees. It is for this reason that God is going to judge America. It is for this reason that America is doomed. And it is for this reason that we who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad feel that our only hope is not integration with a doomed uh, society, but complete separation from a doomed society. South Africa practices what it preaches. Russia practices what it preaches. Franco-Spain practices what it preaches. It's a dictatorship. It doesn't preach freedom. South Africa doesn't preach freedom. Or Russia doesn't call itself the leader of the free world. It's America that looks upon herself and represents herself as the leader of the free world while she has 20 million black people here who aren't even citizens. 20 million black people here. How can you and your government and your government leaders stand up in the United Nations and point the finger at South Africa for practicing what it preaches? It preaches apartheid and it practices apartheid. It preaches the inferiority of the races and it practices the inferiority of the races. Whereas you preach one thing and practice another thing. You say that this is a land of equality and 20 million of your black citizens, so-called citizens, don't have equality. You say that this is the land of freedom and 20 million black people here don't have freedom. You say that this is a land of justice and 20 million black people here don't have justice. And the government from the Supreme Court, the Senate and the Congress and the President on up or down is not able in combined to bring about any change in the attitude of white America toward black America. God is God. He's the same God that the Hebrews worshiped, the same God that the Christians worshiped, and the same God that the Muslims worship. You call him Christ, they call him Jehovah, we call him Allah. Just as Jehovah was absent while the Hebrews were suffering under Pharaoh, didn't mean he was asleep. It meant that he had given Pharaoh uh, an opportunity to rise to a powerful position economically, politically, militarily, so that he could become so powerful that the then unknown God would make himself known by destroying that powerful nation. And if you read your Bible, I think that you will agree that this is the case. God told Pharaoh, it is for this cause that I raised you up. It is for this cause that I myself bless you and your nation to become as powerful as it is. You've turned your, you've become so powerful, now you think you're God. And you have my people in your clutches. So I will prove that I'm God by taking the ones that you look down upon and elevating them while I destroy you. And your only way to avoid that destruction is to submit to these same people whom you in the past have been making submit to you. That he has not got it. It is also that the black Muslims have put forth, as you ought to know, no concrete program except speaking on 125th Street. Now, if I put the kneelings against merely speaking on the street, at least that's a program. Come up with a better one.
If white immigrants can come to this country 50 years ago with nickels and dimes and no education and come here and pool their little nickels and dimes and no education into, with, and set up little stores, develop these stores into larger stores, develop this into an industry which creates job opportunities for whites. Since Lincoln was supposed to have freed the black man 100 years ago, and today the black man, according to the government economists, has spending power of $20 billion per year. We feel that with the black man spending $20 billion a year, not setting up any businesses, not creating any industry, not creating any job opportunities for his own kind, he's not in a moral position to point the finger today at the white man and tell the white man that he's discriminating against him for not giving him a job in factories that he, has, he himself set up. If the black man has $20 billion, and these so-called Negro leaders are such geniuses that they can integrate white restaurants and integrate white factories and integrate, force themselves into that which the white man has set up, they should use this same ingenuity to show the black people how to pool our wealth and set up something of our own. And then we won't have to force our way into his anymore. One more thing I would like to point out concerning what he said about 125th Street. We don't waste our time on 125th Street, but you can reach more people in the street who want to change than you can in the bourgeoisie society, the bourgeoisie church, and the bourgeoisie circles. We, our program is directed toward the man in the street. So we spend our time in the street, and what we do with that man, instead of trying to change the white man in your mind and make, uh, make you accept us, we change the mind of the black man and make him accept himself. And as soon as he accepts himself, He'll solve his own problem. He won't be trying to force himself into your factory and into your bedroom and into your kitchen. Eisenhower, a couple months ago, referred to the situation that the West faces as Armageddon in a speech in Chicago before some distinguished Republicans, if there are such. <laughs> and uh, he referred to this crisis that America is facing as Armageddon because of the nuclear-tipped missiles that are poised all over the earth. If this destruction is ever turned loose on America, the Negro has no uh, fallout shelters, and white people who have them, you won't even let Negroes in white neighborhoods during peacetime. How will he get in your fallout shelter during wartime? You haven't yet desegregated New Rochelle. How are you going to let Negroes, when you're under attack, into a space that you yourself hardly have room in? Why, you're crazy if you think we even think that you will. So we're not relying on fallout shelter. We're not relying on air raid shelter. As I said earlier, we're relying on God. When, when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, with fire, the honorable and brimstone. The honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us that that's only a symbolic story designed to paint a prophetic picture of what America is faced with today. Because of the immorality and indecency and corruption that exists in all levels of American society, God has doomed America for destruction. The only salvation or escape is through God and with God. This is what we teach. 
And despite the fact that we tell you that we rely 100% upon our God to protect us against the trouble that you have gotten yourself in. You didn't get us in this. It's trouble that you have gotten yourself in. If you notice, whenever I refer to America, I don't say we. I don't say I or our. I say you. This is yours. It's not me or mine. And you'll find that this thinking is increasing among black people today. They don't say our government, our president, our senate, our congress, nor do they say our troubles. They say your president, your congress, your senate, and your troubles. We, may I ask, we, uh, and we, uh, we get closer to God, as Dr. Reston said, by stripping ourselves. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. On March 17, 1912, he grew up without his father in his life, and his mother Florence was only 16 years old when she gave birth to him. He believed she was his sister. His Quaker values were adapted from his grandparents, Jennifer and Julia Rustin, which he stated in his own words were based on the concept of a single family and the belief that all members of that family are equal. Twelve years later, on August 2, 1924, writer and civil rights activist James Baldwin was born to Emma Burtis Jones. Baldwin did not know his biological father, but was the grandson of a slave. He was raised in Harlem, New York, and the eldest of nine children who grew up in poverty, while also developing a troubled relationship with his tough religious stepfather. As a child, he found a way to escape his circumstances. As he recalls, I knew I was black, of course, but I also knew I was smart. I didn't know how I would use my mind, or even if I could, but that was the only thing I had to use. He was a trailblazer. He was one that really brought focus through his work um, of what it meant to be black and the struggles of black people. He was very honest, and it was very sincere. He didn't mince words in his place. Uh, he was very direct. Uh, he really uh, confronted the establishment, uh, and he challenged people to think. And um, that's what his work really means to a lot of people today. Uh, when you look at some of the, the plays 
uh, that we have now that really raised the social consciousness uh, of America. Uh, what I can say about James Baldwin is that I think that um, uh, in addition to his uh, incredible writing abilities, uh, he became at a critical time uh, really one of the major spokesmen for the black civil rights movement in the United States. Um, really was no one who played a bigger role, in my opinion, in influencing uh, the uh, uh, 60s other than perhaps Dr. King himself. Both Rustin and Baldwin were born to young mothers who did not have relationships with their biological fathers. It was the influence of the elders of the family that were strong and eventually gave each man the willingness to change their circumstances. The foundation of equality as taught to Rustin by his grandparents and the struggles Baldwin encountered with his stepfather provided them a blueprint to build a life on their personal beliefs. Around the age of 14, Baldwin was spending the majority of his time in local libraries and had finally discovered his passion for writing. During this part of his life, he became a preacher just like his stepfather. Baldwin was a preacher for three years, and he didn't realize it then, but what ultimately fueled him as a writer was dealing with his personal anguish, despair, and the beauty of being a preacher. Ready to move on in the early 1940s, he would abandon his religious faith and focus fully instead on his passion for literature. Baldwin knew once he left the pulpit, he must also leave home. So at the age of 18, he received a job working for the New Jersey Railroad. Baldwin once wrote, If the concept of God has any use, it is to make us larger, freer, and more loving. If God can't do that, it's time to get rid of him. Baldwin once visited Elijah Muhammad, founder of the Nation of Islam, when he was invited to have dinner at his home. Baldwin described Elijah Muhammad as single-minded and uncalculated in his thoughts. Elijah Muhammad believed that Baldwin had been too exposed to white teachings, never receiving true instruction. Elijah Muhammad inquired about Baldwin's religious beliefs. Baldwin replied, I left the church 20 years ago and haven't joined anything since. Elijah asked, And what are you now? Baldwin explained, I, now, nothing. I'm a writer. I like doing things alone. The New Jersey Railroad job was short-lived, and Baldwin moved to Greenwich Village, where he worked as a freelance writer, working primarily on book reviews. While freelancing, he caught the attention of the well-known novelist Richard Wright. Although Baldwin had not yet finished a novel, Wright assisted him with securing a grant in which he could support himself as a writer. James Baldwin would become aware of his homosexuality in 1948. The disgust he felt by the amount of prejudice against both blacks and homosexuals in the United States drove him to relocate to Paris in his mid-twenties, where he would spend virtually the rest of his life. Teenage Rustin wrote poems and played football for his high school, 
and according to lore, during a staged impromptu sit-in at a restaurant, his white teammates were served, but not him. Around this time, he explained to his grandmother that he enjoyed the company of young men rather than girls. His grandmother's response was, I suppose that's what you need to do. Mr. Rustin was openly gay at a time in, in, in our community um, where it was taboo. It was like all the way unacceptable. Rustin attended Wilberforce University in Ohio and Cheney State Teachers College in Pennsylvania, which both are historically black schools we now refer to as HBCUs. In 1937, he moved to New York City and studied at City College of New York. He was briefly involved with the Young Communist League in the 1930s before he became disillusioned with its activities and quit. The yeah, FBI was brand new as communists, and brand new as gay. You know, that's a that was brand new. And as a radical, so that's even worse. In his personal philosophy, Rustin combined the Quaker religion, the nonviolent resistance taught by Mahatma Gandhi, and the socialism espoused by African-American labor leader A. Philip Randolph. During World War II, he worked for Randolph, fighting against racial discrimination in war-related hiring. Upset when the March on Washington was called off in 1941, Rustin met A.J. Musty, a minister and labor organizer, and joined Reverend Musty's Fellowship of Reconciliation. When FOR members in Chicago launched the Congress of Racial Equality in 1942, Rustin traveled around the nation speaking out about civil rights. Two years later, he was arrested for failure to appear before his draft board and for refusing alternative service as a diligent objector. Rustin was sentenced to three years in jail, but ended up serving only 26 months. His desegregation protests and open homosexuality forced authorities to transfer him to a higher security prison. Byard once quoted, Today, blacks are no longer the litmus or the barometer of social change. Blacks are in every segment of society, and there are laws that help to protect them from racial discrimination. The new niggers are gays. It is in this sense that gay people are the new barometer for social change. The question of social change should be formed with the most vulnerable group in mind, gay people. Rustin received punishments several times for his beliefs. He refused to register for the World War II drafts and was jailed for two years. He took part in the protests against the segregated public transit system in 1947, where he was arrested in North Carolina and sentenced to work on a chain gang for a few weeks. Chain gangs were prisoners. As a punishment, they were chained together and forced to do substantially challenging labor. Rustin was arrested on a morals charge for engaging in homosexual activity in public in 1943 and was jailed for 60 days. He, however, continued to live his life as an openly gay man. Organizing human rights protests began in the 1950s for Rustin. He played an important role in organizing and coordinating a march in Aldermaston, England, in which 10,000 protesters demonstrated against nuclear weapons. 
The meeting of Rustin and the young civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., also took place in the 1950s, and he began working with King as an organizer and strategist in 1955. He taught King about Gandhi's philosophy of nonviolent resistance and advised him on the tactics of civil disobedience. Rustin assisted King with the boycott of segregated buses in Montgomery, Alabama in 1956. Baldwin wrote novels and essays. His novel, Giovanni's Room, received much controversy due to its depiction of homosexuality and the love relationship shared between two men. Some of his essay writings included The Hard Kind of Courage, Nobody Knows My Name, and The Fire Next Time. Living in a different country gave Baldwin a perspective on the life he'd left behind and a sole freedom to seek and perfect his craft. In a way, Baldwin's excursions brought him closer to the social concerns of new America. In 1957, Baldwin was overwhelmed by a sense of responsibility to the events and the times, and he returned to the United States to participate in the Civil Rights Movement alongside Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Ultimately, Baldwin would become one of the most prominent figures in the Civil Rights Movement. Discrimination, be it racial or sexual, would be a recurring theme in his work. More precisely, he would seek to show the isolation of blacks in society, but also the loneliness of many regardless of color, which according to him resulted from ambiguities inherent in one's being. Traveling throughout the South, he began work on an explosive work about black identity and the state of racial struggle. Though at times he was judged for his pacifist stance, Baldwin remained an important figure in that struggle throughout the 1960s. We had a lot of intellectual giants in those days, and he obviously was one. He was a part of our black intellectual uh, elite, very intellectually, talk about the black struggles and problems. You know, him and a guy named Ethel Randolph, who was the head of the sleeping car porters or whatever it was, so they were involved with that union of organizing sleeping car, sleeping car porters. The porters were all black, they were trained. They organized him and put him into a unit. And that was a property. He was a part of that. Free and me. In 1965, Rustin and his mentor Randolph co-founded the A. Philip Randolph Institute, a labor organization for African-American trade union members. Prior to this stage of their lives, there were many struggles of civil rights dating back from 1890 to the 1920s, when lynchings were taking place most frequently in the southern United States. Now, many of the newspapers, uh, the black newspapers, every week they reported how many blacks had been lynched. And the lynchings were common, and uh, it symbolizes what was really the worst possible behavior of that time, the treatment Tuskegee Institute has recorded 3,446 blacks and 1,297 whites being lynched between 1882 and 1968. This is an American century. The world will belong to us. This core American fascism, as Roosevelt termed them, must be laughing at labor beating out its own brains. No wonder they can pass out a few favors 
and the Negro people in slavery of one kind or another, feudal or industrial, for the 300 odd years of our lives on this continent, forgetting their civil war struggle, forgetting the lessons of reconstruction, again betrayed by a coalition of industrial finance Republican barons and southern Bourbon plantation owners. And their reward? Lynching the Trenton Six to Peoria, to Virginia, to Georgia, to Alabama, to anywhere where a black face dares to answer back, anywhere where a brown body dares to walk in dignity. Lynchings reinforced power reversal and were public demonstrations of white supremacy. In the 1950s, the civil rights movement was gaining momentum. Membership in the NAACP increased in states across the country. The NAACP achieved a significant U.S. Supreme Court victory in 1954 with the ruling that segregated education was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court's decision on Brown v. the Board of Education called for the desegregation of schools throughout the nation. The Little Rock School Board complied with the courts and submitted a plan for gradual integration in May of the following year. The board approved. Nine black students, nicknamed Little Rock Nine, entered Little Rock Central High School in September 1957. Anywhere that young people dis desegregated a school, it was not an easy task. Uh, just physically, it was not easy because uh, you just didn't go in. There was uh, uh, taunting physically. I think that was what you would call bullying. Uh, there was... Uh, uh, whites were, were mean. Kids were mean. They, were, they uh, hit you, they pulled the girl's hair, they spit on you, they do all these things, and oftentimes there was no recourse. Uh, my brother tells the story that every day when they got off the bus, they were bused from uh, their neighborhood to the white school. They got off the bus doing this. They had to fight every day. When my family moved in the early 50s to our neighborhood, which was uh, a former Jewish community, we were the first black family. And uh, within a year, all the white people moved out. They, uh, they sold it cheap. They just left, you know, because they couldn't conceive of living next door to a black person, okay? So uh, that was my upbringing, what I saw as well during that period, or a little earlier, I should say, elementary school, Emmett Till was killed. And I felt uh, in danger as a young child. A 1955 lynching that sparked public outrage about injustice was that of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old boy from Chicago. I remember personally being extremely upset and shocked about it. Um, looking back, I'd say that it, it's something uh, akin to the way I felt about the Trayon uh, Martin incident with Zimmerman. Spending the summer with relatives in Money, Mississippi, Till was killed for allegedly having wolf-whistled at a white woman. Till had been badly beaten, one of his eyes gouged out, and he was shot in the head before being thrown into the Tallahatchie River. His body weighed down with a 70-pound cotton gin fan tied around his neck with barbed wire. His mother insisted on a public funeral with an open casket to show people how badly Till's body had been disfigured. News photographs circulated around the country and drew intense public reaction. 
people in the nation were horrified that a boy could have been killed for such an incident. The state of Mississippi tried two defendants, but they were speedily acquitted. I had seen firsthand how uh, uh, blacks were treated and the really uh, very disgusting reactions of uh, uh, white men. In the 1960s, the civil rights movement attracted students to the South from all over the country to work on voter registration and other issues. The intervention of people from outside the communities and threat of social change aroused fear and resentment among whites. During this period, blacks faced legal discrimination from both businesses and government. Jim Crow laws prevented blacks from being serviced or from even entering certain businesses. Protests in several states were organized over the years. Some became violent, with the refusal to disperse by the demand of white authorities. On June 11, 1963, President John F. Kennedy announced his plan to push for civil rights legislation. Later that evening, Medgar Evers, the popular civil rights activist from Mississippi, was murdered. Rustin was a key figure in the organization of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, where King delivered his legendary I Have a Dream speech. By uh, Rustin, his uh, contribution at the moment of that march is inestimable. He got it together. He was the actual brain behind the movement. Nearly 200,000 people flooded the city for one of the largest demonstrations for human rights. All the representatives of society were there at that march. Church, state, labor union, political advocates, the whole, the, as we discovered the term grassroots, grassroots means cultural, the whole cultural volume of us. Jobs is a big thing, like it is now. So, see, everybody supported to get the jobs. <laughs> see, everybody knew that whether you're a nationalist or whether you're an integrationist or whether you're just a dumb guy. You know, you're smart enough to know jobs. Marchers linked arms as they marched down Constitution Avenue to the Lincoln Memorial. Speakers at the march included Byard Rustin, Daisy Bates, John Lewis, Walter Ruther, Floyd McKissick, Joaquin Prince, Whitney Young, Josephine Baker, Roy Wilkins, and A. Philip Randolph. Notable attendees included James Baldwin, Marlon Brando, Jackie Robinson, Sidney Poitier, Harry Belafonte, Charlton Heston, Bill Russell, Sammy Davis Jr., Bob Dylan, Ozzie Davis, Marian Anderson, Joan Baez, and many more. Integration had begun to take place, but not everyone was pleased. In Birmingham, Alabama, 1963, an explosion erupted at the 16th Street Baptist Church killing four young girls, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Denise McNair. The bombing was an act of white supremacy aimed at putting a stop to the progress of integration in public places. This incident marked a turning point in the civil rights movement and prompted the push for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over that. 
but somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. Three years later, the news of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination shocked the nation on April 4th, 1958. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Senator Robert F. Kennedy informed a crowd in Indianapolis, Indiana, of his death during a campaign tour, many of which had not heard about his passing. I'm only going to talk to you just for a minute or so this evening because I have some very sad news for all of you and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Angered at the news of the assassination of King, riots broke out in cities across the country, Chicago, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., The White House ordered over 13,000 troops to guard the White House and gain control of the crowds. Rioting went on for days. Evidence of the rebellions remained on some city blocks for decades. April 9, 1968, King's funeral service was followed by a three-mile procession from Ebenezer Baptist Church to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. Saddened by the assassination of his friend, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Baldwin returned to St. Paul de Vence, France. There he worked on a book about the adversity of the times. Many responded to the harsh tone of the book with accusations of bitterness. But even though Baldwin had captured much of the anger of the times in his book, he continued and always remained a constant advocate for universal love and brotherhood. Rustin received numerous awards and honorary degrees throughout his career, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom posthumously from President Barack Obama. His writings about civil rights were published in the collection Down the Line in 1971 and in Strategies for Freedom in 1976. He continued to speak out about the importance of economic equality within the civil rights movement, as well as the need for social rights for gays and lesbians. Bayard Rustin died of a ruptured appendix in New York City on August 24, 1987, at the age of 75. Bayard Rustin was the focus of two films, one a biographical feature titled Out of the Past, and the other a documentary, Brother Outsider. Rustin once wrote, The principal factors which influenced my life are nonviolent tactics, constitutional means, democratic procedures, respect for human personality, and the belief that all people are one. James Baldwin would be internationally recognized on numerous occasions during both his lifetime and after his untimely death. Baraka called James Baldwin. God's revolutionary mouth. James Baldwin, man, we were so proud of him. He stood up for his leaders. They're just delicious, and if you engage them and read them, you have enough food to feed your soul, your spirit, you know? 
Baldwin would succumb to stomach cancer exactly four months and 23 days after Rustin at the age of 63 on December 1, 1987, in St. Paul de Vence in southeastern France. He is buried in Ferncliff Cemetery in Hartsdale, not far from New York City, where many other artists and prominent figures have been laid to rest. Baldwin's life and legacy has influenced countless writers and friends. In 2004, the United States Postal Service created a first-class stamp in his honor. He was inducted into the New York Writers Hall of Fame and named one of the top 100 greatest writers. His influence reached the likes of famed poet and friend Maya Angelou, Nikki Giovanni, Josephine Baker, Amiri Baraka, Alex Haley, Dolores Kendrick, Langston Hughes, and Lena Horne. Toni Morrison's New York Times eulogy entitled Life in His Language reads, You knew, didn't you, how I needed your language and the mind that formed it, how I relied on your fierce courage to tame wilderness for me, how strengthened I was by certainty that came from knowing you would never hurt me. You knew, didn't you, how I loved your love. You knew. This is no calamity. No, this is jubilee. Our crown, you said, has already been bought and paid for. All we have to do, you said, is wear it. I can tell you that I stand on the shoulders of many people who came before me because I came after segregation, and I was afforded the benefits of what, seg what the people before me in civil rights and they, what they marched for, what they struggled for, the signs were that down. I didn't have to bus to a school. I could go to my neighborhood school. You know, all those things were afforded me an opportunity as an African American male growing up in in D.C. You know, I am a native Washingtonian and proud of it. So, <laughs> so people like you, I'm, I stand on your shoulders. But but and I, I think that it's people like you who can take this mm -hmm. and tell the story and share the story. Right. Uh, but I also think it's people like you who also know that the journey isn't over. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. An aspiring theocratic dictator or authoritarian might have at their disposal could make The Handmaid's Tale look quaint almost in comparison. The hypocrisies of Gilead is that it's steeped in this religious veneer, and we know that the um, commanders go and uh, um, seek their own pleasures outside of the confines of their own moral etiquette, mm -hmm. that they are deeply homophobic, that uh, they are really rapists, and uh, somehow cover everything with this veneer of religion. And so do you have the impression that when Atwood wrote The Handmaid's Tale in 1985, that uh, she already debunked those myths that, that sort of say, extreme religious groups were um, uh, morally impeccable? Do you think that this is more the case now, or do you think that you find that that things haven't really changed since 1985. Oh, it's amazing to me that Margaret Atwood had the, the perspective that she did, because in a way, 
her book, which, uh, what was the publication date? 80, 85, 1985. 85, yeah. 85, if you think about the, the storming of Congress um, in January 6th, um, you know, how many, I'm very bad at math, speaking of dyslexia, but how many years is that? Because in a sense, she was writing a, a, an almost prophetic vision of the future to come. Because oh, in, the, yeah. you know, in yeah. the book, she has uh, P- Congress being decimated, people killed. She has this sort of right-wing movement that is very much present with us now in the militias. Um, you think about uh, the storming of the Capitol and the, and the, and the Trump presidency that depended entirely upon the white evangelical vote. You know, you can take Putin out of it, you can do all sorts of things, but if you take the white evangelical voter out, Trump's never president. So when um, Gary, when, when, when people like Ralph Reed, who by the way got into politics because of me and my dad, sat down with Trump and gave him a list of the Federalist Society judges that he wanted appointed in, in trade for bringing the evangelical vote, this is like a page ripped out of, the, of Atwood's book. I mean, this, this is genuine, you know, political deal-making and machination aimed at women's rights most directly. If we just get rid of that one qualifier. So they're not delusional, but they are part of a, a, a mass delusion. And the kinds of things that we expect to see are the things we've already seen. Uh, they're the sorts of things that happen to our people and the sorts of things we experience. You can read books where we were suffering from the same symptoms during slavery. So they're the, the problems that you get, let's first start with the three noxious emotions. So those three noxious emotions are sadness, fear, and anger. And those emotions have their own, each one has their own single stressor. So but without belaboring it, when anytime somebody is sad, that's because of loss. They could lose a family member. They could lose a... Uh, they could lose some money, they could lose their job, uh, they could lose their freedom. So, If America Fails, live streaming at the TruthWorks Network YouTube channel. Join us this Thursday, February 10th, with Dr. Ruth Ben-Giat and Dr. Karen A. Rittenhouse, as If America Fails addresses race and ethnicity in an authoritarian regime. 8 p.m. TruthWorks Network, YouTube, live streaming. If America Fails. Thursday, 8 p.m. We hope If America Fails dot live, a TruthWorks Network production. And America Fails. Are you sure? Now, I love children, and I think something needs to be done for 17-year-olds. But to send youngsters to the Job Corps to graduate where there are no jobs, and you know there are no jobs before you send them there, is to build Molokov cocktails and send them back into the ghetto. Since the beginning of this nation, we have attempted to make a moral and psychological analysis of prejudice, the economic and social degradation to which it has led, 
and I'm afraid we are still doing so. Even amongst the so-called young Negro revolutionaries today, certainly this has been true of whites throughout our history, we have behaved as if the problem were a psychological one and one of just plain hatred to the Negro. It was never such and it is not now such and we will not deal with the problems in the future as such. Now in order to make clear what I am saying I want to give a few examples. Thomas Jefferson awoke one night in a sweat. He had just heard and had a nightmare. What was that nightmare? That he had seen the flag of the United States being torn asunder. Negroes pulling on one end as slaves and whites pulling back and the nation was torn to bits. He rose from his nightmare, sat down at his desk, took a pen and created a moral response. That is to say, he wrote that on his death the slaves should be manumitted, that they should be set free. Therein you have the basic problem that has plagued us from the beginning. Jefferson did not do what he ought to have done. Noble as the manumitting of his slaves was at his death. No one here could be against that. What he should have done if the civil war was truly not to rend this nation to bits. In the most vicious battle that has ever taken place, making what is happening in Vietnam look like peanuts, morally. He should have made a moral response which led to political conclusions. He should therefore have gone into Congress with a program and a political meaningfully program for the elimination of slavery. But it remained a moral attitude. As great as the abolitionists were, they too made the same mistake. They were all against slavery because it is morally wrong. But name for me one abolitionist who had an economic and social program for what was to be done when that war concluded. And who in the process of that war projected an economic and social program. It is often said that Negroes have no program. We have always had an economic and political program. It was we who said, we want 40 acres and a mule in order to start life again when slavery is finished. The abolitionists turned their backs on any economic and social program. They got tired and they disappeared into thin air. Even today, the radical young Negroes, whom I understand have affection for and have worked with, and who I profoundly respect, nevertheless, 
are making the same basic mistake. The argument being, we want black power, whatever that is, with no real definition of it. We want self-respect. We want Negro dignity, all of which I am in favor of. But it is another blind alley because dignity and self-respect must spring from the economic and social position which you hold in the society and cannot be mythologically and viscerally created out of some new response of dignity where the objective situation indeed makes dignity impossible. Now the big question before the United States today is whether we're going to understand one thing. In Nigeria today, there is as brutal behavior on the part of blacks to blacks as there is any place else in the world at the moment. I say, my dear friends, that no economic or social order has ever been developed on the, race of, on the basis of color. It must be developed on the basis of class. I have more in common with a member of the Young Socialist League who sees the degree to which there must be socialization of this nation than I have with Jack, Jackie Robinson, a black banker. Because no social movement can be built fundamentally on color. What we must see is that all men are capable of being brutal, that the likelihood is that if the proposition were reversed, Negroes would have been as brutal as whites, and if one sees the universality of the possibility of brutality and racism, then one looks somewhere else for answers to problems. Surely, the most brutal behavior when Martin Luther King was asking that Negroes should have the right to have houses in Chicago. But it didn't take any description of brutality and white racism for me to understand that problem? The problem is simple. Since racism is basically possible in all groups, the problem is do you build an economic and social structure which has so much injustice in it that that racism is raised from the bottom and socially and politically organized or do you build the kind of economic and social order which reduces the possibility of that prejudice to an irreducible minimum where it cannot be politically and socially organized? That's the problem. Martin King and any other Negro leader will be stoned in these cities. And that is the reason I was shocked by Martin King's talking about the disruption of cities, which I'm happy he never proceeded to carry out. 
Because the problem is not plain prejudice which is there in all people. It is that the economic and social order where there are not enough jobs in this society, where there is not enough housing in this society, where there is not enough medical care in this society, a society in which the lower middle class whites are up to here economically and are therefore more filled with economic fear than Negroes are with frustration, walk into that situation and you will be stoned. If, on the other hand, there had been adequate housing in Chicago, if there were adequate jobs, if this nation were not insisting upon a 4% unemployment rate as being good for the society, no matter how much prejudice there was at the bottom, it could not have expressed itself in political organization. Now, having said that, I think before I talk about the freedom budget, it is necessary for us to make some analysis of where we are now. Because everybody is writing great and long articles about prejudice and discrimination in the United States as if we were back in 1955 or 56 or 57 or 58 or 60 or 62 or 3 or 4. The fact is, my friend, we are in a totally different period in the problem of civil rights than we have ever been in our history and practically none of the experience of the past is particularly significant. Let me therefore call the modern revolution that which began with the Montgomery bus protest, 1955. But that period ended in the 65 period after we had received the Civil Rights Act bill and the Voter Rights Bill. Therefore, in order that I can help us understand the nature of the situation, I'm going to divide the problem into two parts. I shall refer to period one, by which I mean the period from the Montgomery bus protest to the passage of the Voter Rights Bill. I shall refer then, in contrast, to period number two, which is the period we are now in. In period number one, we were fighting almost exclusively for those things which affected Negroes alone. The right to vote, which any white person had. The right for public accommodations, which all white people had. They were the true great thrust of that period. That's what the Montgomery bus protest was about. That's what the freedom rides were about. That's what the uh, sit-ins were about. That's what the march on Washington was about, etc. That's what about Selma was about. Birmingham was about. Now I want you to note in the present period, we are dealing with practically no fundamental question in the minds of Negroes, which are Negro problems. For what Negroes are now interested in is decent housing, 
decent jobs, decent education, and the right of participation in decision-making. They are the four great demands of the Negro people today. But those demands are the result of basic contradictions in our society and not demands to brutalize the Negro. Now when we learn that, we will learn about a great deal about strategy and tactics. The Senate did not turn down 37 to 33 today not to give drugs to people over 65 because they wanted to brutalize Negroes. But because we have a Senate that doesn't give a damn what happens to elderly people. That is a contradiction in the whole nature of American society. And it is at that contradiction that the problems for the Negroes will be solved or they will not be solved at all. People accuse me of being too liberal and uh, too close to the establishment. Perhaps I am, but I have more sense about the nature of the white community than they have. This society never has and never will do anything special for the Negro. That is the reason we call it the freedom budget for all Americans. It is not that I do not know that Negroes are most brutalized by poverty, for they are. But I also know that 67% of the poor are white. And that unless we're going to draw up programs which have to do with the elimination of poverty and not concerned with Negro poverty, we will not get anywhere in this society. If this society were now prepared to do something special for Negroes, it would not have been required that something special be done for Negroes. That is just the problem. Number two, in the first period, 55 to 65, the nature of American pressure on the Negro community would not permit the class struggle to emerge in the Negro community. Ralph Bunch couldn't vote some places, he couldn't eat some places, and where he couldn't eat, neither could the sharecropper. But now you come along with a civil rights bill giving those all Negroes the right to use public accommodations and to vote. And what this means is that Negroes who have money, who are economically independent enough can vote, and those who don't, cannot. Negroes who have money to use hotels, theaters, and restaurants can use them, and those who don't, cannot. Thus, for the first time now, we are not only faced with the cost problem vis-a-vis -vis the whites, but equally vicious is now the internal class problem within the Negro community. So that at Watts they said to me, Mr. Rustin, you're a house nigger. Why don't you go on back to New York? Nothing you can do to talk to us. Same thing for you, Martin Luther King, because you niggers have made it, and we haven't. The class problem means that not only must Negroes now fight for their rights in the general society, but that those Negroes who do not have it 
are as angry as Negroes who have it, as, who have made it, as they are at whites who have it. That is a very new element in the picture. Thirdly, when you talk in the early period about the right to vote and about the right to eat in public accommodation, you are talking about something that the government doesn't have to put up any money for, except when Medgar Evers gets shot, they send the police out to see if they can find who shot him. Or Martin King's having a demonstration, the federal government may send in a few marshals to watch. In the current period, since no city, including Boston, has money to put its unemployed back to work, since no city, including Boston, has enough money for a decent educational system, since no city, including Boston, can in fact find an answer to the problem of housing without federal aid, this is a period where billions of dollars must come from the federal government if anything at all is to occur. <coughs> In the early period, make no joke about it, I sat with Negro leaders night after night during those 10 years planning. We did not create the dynamic of that revolution from 55 to 65. That dynamic for the revolution was created by Bull Connor and his dogs and his fire hoses and the killing of people and the bombing of churches. In this new period, the Negro people cannot be unified by Bull Connor's dogs and white support cannot be created by Southern brutality because it isn't going to exist anymore in the form it did. That means, therefore, that we must now create the dynamic for that change ourselves. That's a very different thing, and I submit to anybody here who's Jewish to think on the fact that if there had been no Hitler, I doubt there would be a Palestine today, an Israel. The point I'm making is there are times when negative factors in the society can congeal things. This is the time where negative factors in the community pull things apart. <coughs> In the old period, all the youngsters needed was bravery and perseverance. They just sat at the restaurants, they swam in the swimming pools, no matter what they did to them. They arrested them, they'd come back, they beat them, they'd come back, and finally you get a breakthrough. No young Negroes today with mere courage and perseverance are going to make any contribution. For in this period, one needs an analysis of politics, one needs an analysis of the processes of social change, one needs to know how to build alliances, one needs to know sociology, economics, and psychology, and the old leadership is dead. 
and a part of the shenanigans which you now see is the interim period where some youngsters still think that they have now transferred their speech making at Birmingham and Selma and Montgomery to national television. But they will tell us nothing about the nature of social change nor do they have a program, economic, social, or political. Now there's one other factor. In the old period, we were coasting on an internal psychological wave that was moving toward progress. That is to say, if you had asked any individual in this nation, particularly the university, what is the most compelling problem we face between 55 and 65? Invariably, they would have said the civil rights movement. Since 65, we have been moving against the psychological concern of the liberal forces of this nation. If you now ask the average American what is the most compelling problem, he will say ending the war in Vietnam, and he is right. So that psychologically, the war in Vietnam has trapped us. It has split the civil rights movement down the middle, it has caused many white people who were in it to say that must wait now until we stop Vietnam. And it has made it possible for a congressional backlash which is always going to fight progress. The war has given them a patriotic platform on which to stand for the stopping of that progress. And let me say here, lest there be some confusion, the notion that we can do nothing about the domestic problems until we deal with Vietnam is vicious. It is precisely what Goldwater and Easton say. And if anyone expects me to go back to the ghetto and tell Negroes that I've just been talking with my white liberal friends who have convinced me that nothing for you can be done till the war in Vietnam is over, then I think I must have holes in my head. But I want to point it out more differently. My friends, if the war in Vietnam were over tomorrow morning, I would still want more money than we are spending in Vietnam for use in Asia, Africa, and Latin America for the creation of democratic institutions there and for the relief of people who are starving in India. And if we are not prepared when the war in Vietnam is over to insist on more money than is being spent there for our positive international convictions, we are in trouble. And therefore, the war in Vietnam is not an economic and financial problem. We have the wealth to do both. It becomes a psychological and political problem 
because we do not have the courage to fight off in our own mind left-wing concepts, which are printed as right-wing concepts, and vice versa. Because it is here that you will find the SDS and the Birchites saying the same thing about the freedom budget. It's no good to the war in Vietnam is over. And whether they say it for different reasons or not does not bother me, because the reasons that people behave politically as they do is unimportant. It is that there is a political alliance between them to destroy it. Now finally in this regard, my dear friends, there is something else. The period from 55 to 65 was a period of faith. We shall overcome, we shall never turn back, we shall never be turned around. Martin Luther King had a dream on August 28, 1963. No Negroes have a dream today. They all have a nightmare. This is not a period of hope. This is a period of despair. And make no confusion about it. While we cannot get rid of rioting, unless we do something now about housing, schools, and jobs, and representation. It was not bad housing, bad schools, bad jobs, and the absence of participation which caused the riots. The riots were caused by hopelessness. That nobody believes in the Negro community that tomorrow, or a week from next Thursday, or a year from now, or ten years from now, that there will be full employment, that there will be the destruction of slums, that there will be public health measures, that there will be decent schools, that there will be representation. That was the cause of the riot, the hopelessness. Now I come therefore to the Freedom Budget because the Freedom Budget is for the purpose of restoring hope. In a situation, the Freedom Budget is very simple. It says, number one, while we are all for everything which has been done in the war on poverty, and while we must fight it now, we have to fight for the war on poverty though it is relatively insignificant. Why do we have to fight for it? Because we must continue to establish that this nation has an obligation to eliminate poverty. Here again, though I criticize the war on poverty, I will not join the Birchites, who would be delighted to have me say it's no damn good. The war on poverty never could have worked to eliminate poverty because, my friends, the only way to eliminate poverty is to see that the heads of families of the poor are economically independent. Now, I love children, and I think something needs to be done for 17-year-olds. But to send youngsters to the Job Corps to graduate where there are no jobs, and you know there are no jobs before you send them there, is to build Molokov cocktails and send them back into the ghetto. Now, I love children, and I'm all for Head Start as far as it goes. But anybody ought to know that you can't have a Head Start 
and then send the children back to the same ghetto schools, the same houses with rats and roaches, the same teachers who cannot care, the same parents who are separated, and think you've done something. Just the opposite has been proven. A Moynihan report could have been written about Mr. Moynihan's Irish in 1910. A Moynihan report could have been written by some Italian about the Italians in 1912. In fact, Mr. Moynihan didn't write the best nor the most incisive report. It was written by E. Franklin Frazier of Howard University, who was black. As long as he was black, nobody jumped on him. Moynihan's white, he's got to get jumped on. (laughs) But my friends, this is what we know from the Italians and Irish, who are two groups who had very similar problems of high crime rate, family instability and all the other things which are described in the Moynihan Report. The society created objective situations which made it possible for the heads of those families to gain economic independence. And as the heads of families gained economic independence, all the problems in the community were gradually reduced. Now we're trying to reverse it now. If we will only help the little children, three and four, and the teenagers for whom there are no jobs, leaving a father who still cannot be respected and a mother who is harassed, somehow or other the Negroes are going to create a miracle. Well, I happen to believe that Negroes are very beautiful people. We are not going to create any damn miracles. Now, the freedom budget not only does something about children and teenagers, but it goes to the head of family. It says who is poor and what significance does it have. All this talk that you university people do about disadvantaged and acculturated and... uh, (laughs) Lay off it. There is only one difference between a man who is rich and one who is poor. One has money and one does not. There is one respect in which I know I am more cultured than Governor Rockefeller. Uh, A dirty Democrat. I do not have an agent go to Europe and buy my Picassos. I can't afford them. I go to auctions around New York and pick out my own paintings according to my ability. That's culture. Rocky buys his through agents. But that has nothing to do with how much money he's got or I have. Now, if poverty is the problem, ladies and gentlemen, let's face it. The freedom budget says, put money into the hands of the poor so that they can no longer be described as poor. For something will happen when they get money. 
Now, in case there are any died-in-the-wall capitalists here, I want to reassure you. The first thing they're going to do when they get this money is to go out and buy the filthy junk you produce and advertise on television. Now that may sound like a joke, but this is a part of the economic theory I'm expounding. That to the degree that we put money in their hands and they go out and buy television and shoes and baby carriages and toothbrushes and toothpaste and the kind of perfume men use to get rid of pimples so the girls will love them. When they buy all these things, our gross national product increases. And it is from that gross national product that we want to get this money for the freedom budget. Now, having dealt with the dyed-in-the-wool capitalists, I started to call them black capitalists, but we don't want to call nobody black today who ain't. But that's another matter. <laughs> we say there are only two. Number one, public works. Now, forget Franklin Del Roosevelt and WPA, because I'm not talking about anything like that. I am talking about public works for the benefit of the rich and the poor equally. Now, since I talked about Rocky, let me talk about Kennedy for a minute. Kennedy is a very poor man. He announced last spring he can no longer take his children on the Hudson in his yacht because it's so dirty. Well, let's help him. First of all, we'll put many of these poor back to work cleaning our rivers so that Robert Kennedy can take his pretty little children sailing on the Hudson in their yacht. But here again, I don't want to be nonpartisan. I want to be nonpartisan. Let's help Rockefeller. All right, we help Rocky. He comes into New York five or six times a week, and he's no better off than the dope addict on Harlem streets in regard to the air he breathes. It is filthy. So we put thousands of these people back to work cleaning the air so poor Rocky is not so poor. Incidentally, now all the colored people also up and down Lenox Avenue can be a little more spirited because their lungs are cleaner too. <laughs> now we repeat this in building subway systems. We repeat this in building hospitals. We repeat this in building schools. We repeat this in doing a thousand things. But I don't want those young Negroes and poor whites just going out there to deal with air pollution as if they were dragging leaves. I want many of them to be trained in the process to become assistant engineers. And those who have the ability to get an engineering diploma out of the air, rather than from the Board of Governors of Harvard. That we create a new concept of education in the process. Number two, for all those who cannot work, those who are too old, too young, too sick, too psychologically crippled and physically crippled, that they get a guaranteed income and for nobody else. Number three, that there be family allowances, which every civilized country has. 
that there be medical care completely free. This is what the freedom budget has. Last summer I'm in Britain, I catch a terrible cold. So I go to a doctor, and when I leave I say, Doctor, how much do I owe you? He says, nothing. And I said, oh, doctor, I didn't know that the uh, uh, British medical system took care of foreigners. He looked at me as if I were stupid. He said, why not foreigners? He said, there are plenty of foreigners who can't pay. I said, but I can pay. He says, oh, we don't care about your few pennies. He said, what we care about is that you're not down in the underground sniffling and sneezing and giving the rest of us colds. <laughs> well, I thought that was a perfectly magnificent, philosophically selfish way of looking at it. <laughs> Furthermore, I believe that we must stop fooling ourselves. Poor whites and poor Negroes are not going ever to go to college in this country again on the basis of these few puny scholarships that uh, Harvard and Yale and the others get together and pat themselves on the back about. I would prefer to see them put every poor student out on a scholarship and use the money they are devoting to him to the political process whereby everyone who has a brain in his head can study from the time he is in kindergarten to PhD and redefine study as work and give him a salary for going to school. These are some of the things the Freedom Budget calls for. The Freedom Budget furthermore says that until that when you talk about Negroes helping themselves, Negroes are prepared to help themselves. One fourth of all the Negro poor are not unemployed. They are working at beneath minimum wages in the cotton fields of Mississippi for $3 a day in houses as maids as $8 a week in Montgomery, Alabama, help themselves. Now we want a $2 minimum wage so that Negro people who are working and deserve a decent wage shall have it. Now you'll say to me, but Mr. Rustin, my father owns a little store and he couldn't possibly pay $2 minimum wage. If he owns a tiny little store, you're probably right. I want to help him too. Oh, I want to help everybody. <laughs> if we can subsidize Mr. Rockefeller's and Mr. Harrington's railways for billions of dollars, and if we can give farmers billions of dollars because they don't plant or because they plant here or because they burn this crop and save this one, then I am for a $2 minimum wage in which those employers who cannot afford truly to pay it receive subsidies from the government in order to pay it. I am not for brutalizing the poor small businessman. I am for helping the worker who is exploited. And if to do that we have to help the small businessman, amen. Now, some of the criticisms of the Freedom Budget, and I'll have done in just a second. One thing people say about the Freedom Budget is, well, Mr. Rustin, you've got a section in there in which you actually talk about defense figures. How could you talk about defense figures? Aren't you against the war in Vietnam? I most certainly am. <coughs> but my friends, if you're going to make a chart, 
as to how money can be spent, and if that money is to come from the GNP, then you have to chart that on the basis of all the money the government gets and all the things they have to spend money for to prove that they can take three and a half percent of it for the freedom budget, which is precisely the figure we took in order to have the Marshall Plan to lift Europe. Well, now, if you're going to have the Marshall Plan, you can't say, well, I'm going to hide my back to the fact that we're spending money on the military. We had to put those figures in to prove how the, all the money would be spent. Therefore, we had to estimate how much the federal government was going to spend on military things. It wasn't that we wanted them to do it, but we had to make a sensible estimate. <coughs> Second criticism of the freedom budget is that it doesn't say enough about the participation of the poor. Well, I want to make it quite clear. There's nobody who has spent more of his life trying to make it possible for the poor to express themselves. I am all for, like the young militant Negroes, the right of Negroes to have a decision over their lives. Everybody else has. Why not us? But I am not going to fall for a gang of foolishness. Ultimately, in a democracy, real participation of the poor, whether radicals like to think so or not, until the moment of revolution comes, by which I mean violent revolution, is in the political processes of the major political parties and the minor political parties which affect their behavior. Now you take a small group of Negroes working on housing in Newark, New Jersey. They think because they get together and vote Mrs. Smith onto some board that that's real democratic participation. It is possible only if we can get a freedom budget in which the United States is committing billions of dollars to being sent into Newark. Otherwise, Mrs. Jones is sitting on a committee voting in the vacuum that no matter what those Negroes on that committee decide, it ultimately doesn't make any difference because there isn't any money anyhow. So I am saying that in the process of insisting on the right to be heard and to help make decisions, that is a process of, eject, of, of masturbation unless it is overall covered by a financial policy and priorities in the nation that is meaningful. The Freedom Budget stands for the change of priorities, national planning, the government becoming the employer of last resort, the government becoming the houser of last resort, the dedication of putting sufficient money into people's pockets so that they can live in this affluent society with dignity, free education, free, free medical care. But much, what's much more important than anything else is that we in the Freedom Budget don't think we have all the answers. 
For example, we don't think we really have the answers on how you get the best methods within the political structure for the participation of the poor. In your workshops tomorrow, we would welcome a discussion of that because we don't have the answer. We don't know, for an example, how much of this can be done by private enterprise, how much needs to be done in the overall picture by a combination of private enterprise and government, and how much must be exclusively done by government. We welcome your suggestions from these discussions you have tomorrow in helping us out in these regards. Let me just say in conclusion, my friends, that we are up against the most difficult period of American history that we have ever faced. Now, I don't think anybody can accuse me of being a red, hot, firebrand, Nobody can say that I haven't made my criticisms of black power where I think they are, there are negative criticisms. Nobody can say that I haven't jumped on SNCC for that anti-Semitic SNCC uh, 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 letter that they put out. Nobody can say I haven't defended what I believe to be right and that I can be critical. But having said that, I want to say to my white friends that although I am very distressed with the behavior of some young Negroes, how could we have expected that this kind of disaffection and disregard for America and what it stands could have been avoided? I am not threatening because I do not threaten. But I am here to say to you that young Negroes today are a totally different breed from my generation. It's one of the reasons I sometimes have trouble understanding them. When I went downtown, my grandmother said to me, Fire, don't you go nowhere near no white woman. And if you see any bothering you or asking the time or direction, just pretend you don't hear her and keep on going because they're nothing but trouble. Buyer, when you go downtown, whether you're right or wrong, whatever the policeman tells you to do, you do it. Even if you're right, do what he tells you to do faster and get out because he's only going to brutalize you. Buyer, when you go downtown and any white people call you nigger or black bastard or rub your head, let them rub your head for good luck, just don't say nothing. No, this happened, friends. Don't say anything. Well, now you've got to admit that young Negroes rejecting that kind of thing and standing up and saying, all right, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. They are not, friends. They mean it. There are elements in this society, in the Negro community, which out of a developing manhood, and not because they are devils, would in fact prefer to see this society destroyed and the cities burned down if they cannot have respect. We have got to make our peace with this. And the only way we can give them that respect is not by urging them to study Swahili, and not by urging them to collect African art, 
and not by appeasing them in conferences, by giving them 50% of the votes when they're 10% of the people, and not by be, uh, permitting white guilt to, uh, to endure any Negro indignity. It is by coming into the battle to fight for those economic and social demands which alone can bring freedom to the poor and relieve the Negro, the most desperately poor of all. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promise of Glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it, because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Thank you for joining us tonight at Our Common Ground. Join us each Saturday night, 10 p.m., transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you, reminding you to trust your story. With the, 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 with